Tonight's reading will be from Matthew 5, 1 through 12, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. When storm clouds started to gather over Nazi Germany in the early 30s, uh, the young theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was deeply troubled to discover that the church, rather than resisting uh, Hitler, was reshaping her theology to support the Reich. And so Bonhoeffer uh, felt he needed to leave. He fled to New York. He studied for a period at uh, Union seminary, but felt God's call to return. And when he came back, he saw that his churches were making a fatal error of confusing the kingdom of man for the kingdom of God. And so in 1935, he established what he called the Emergency Teaching Seminary of the Confessing Church. Uh, first at a little seacoast town named Zingst, and then shortly thereafter at a country estate called Finkenwald. Twenty-three young men joined him. And he set up the monastery, or set up the seminary according to the rhythms of a monastery. The students gathered every morning and every evening for prayer. Uh, and then they heard lectures throughout the day. And what he decided as he prayed about, what, what should I teach these young men if they are going to be pastors in the Reich? If, if they're somehow going to be able to stand up in the face of the Gestapo, uh, what, where should I start? What should I teach them? And he decided that he would lecture on the Sermon on the Mount because he felt that the Sermon on the Mount uh, revealed uh, the, the core values of the kingdom of God, the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God that could never be mistaken with the, the kingdom of the Reich. And so he began to lecture on them, and some students took notes, and shortly after the Gestapo shut down Finkenwald, uh, the notes were published in a little book called Following Christ. Ten years later, it was translated into English, and it was called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Now, we obviously live in in a very different situation, but there are similarities. Uh, For one, the American church often confuses the kingdom of God with the American dream. And some have wondered aloud if America needs a confessing church as well. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount 
casts a vision for the confessing church, for a very different kind of kingdom, for an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of man. And Jesus begins the sermon with eight Beatitudes. He says, these are eight qualities that I, I affirm in my people. These are what happens when you come under my reign and rule. This is what your life will look like if you leave that kingdom and follow mine. And we looked at four last week, and hopefully we'll look at four tonight. Let's begin in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word for mercy was chesed. Uh, It begins to, it's often used for God in his mercy towards Israel when she rebelled and sinned. And then it was used in the prophets and in Proverbs this way, that God's people were to be merciful towards those in need because they'd experienced great mercy. And this was particularly towards the poor. Proverbs 14.21, Blessed is the one who has mercy on the poor. And when Jesus comes to the earth, he models chesed, he models mercy. He has all sorts of compassion on the neediest members of his community. Matthew 9.36 says he had compassion on them because they were helpless. Now, there's an interesting little statement that Matthew makes right after that describing what motivated Jesus. And uh, literally it says, and he was moved in his bowels. And in the the Hebrew mindset, the bowels were a place of uh, emotion, of uh, where you felt the most deeply. And so today we might translate it, his heart was broken. So mercy is something, it's a a movement towards someone in need that flows out of a broken heart. And I think that broken heart part is is important because the Sermon on the Mount is a dangerous book. It's a dangerous sermon. Uh, it, It can quickly become legalistic. It can quickly become all these things that I have to do to... Please God. And interestingly, Bonhoeffer, at the end of his life, when he was in uh, prison, uh, wrote that he felt he'd gone a little too far with the cost of discipleship. He felt that he'd let some legalism creep in. These things can easily do that to us. And so how how do you know when and where to be merciful? Uh, There's so many needs in the world. Well, what I'd suggest is pay attention to your, your gut. What are the things that break your heart? Pay attention to the things that break your heart. And when you do that, don't assume that the things that break your heart break my heart. This is where we get into a little problem, a little legalistically, is that when we start to really become passionate about whatever cause that it is, we we expect everyone else to be equally as compassionate about it. We get angry when they don't come to the same meeting that we did or give to the same cause that we give to. Let's not do that. But here's what we can do. When your heart starts to break for a certain person or need in the community... 
Find the other people around you in whom God is doing the same thing. And start to pray with them. And you'll figure out where to go next. Well, the next beatitude says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus seems to have Psalm 24, verse 3 in mind. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This was a big part of the spirituality that Jesus learned in, a, in, 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 in Judaism. Was that if you want to have a close and intimate relationship with God, you need to have a, a clean heart, an undivided heart, a centered heart. A heart that wills one thing. A heart that is, that is not false in, in pursuing idols. Or maybe he was thinking of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your strength, and with all your might. The heart in, in the Hebrew worldview was the center of the person, the, the very bottom of who you were, the core of who you are. And so, so Jesus is, is talking about someone who is clean and clear at the center. And their, their exterior actions flow out of that sinner and are aligned with that sinner. They're not two different people. One writer put it like this. The heart that has been removed from the realm of the profane and consecrated to the service of God is a heart that in some sense is made into a vessel to receive the presence of God. The heart the Lord speaks of has been purified from an attachment to the profane by being washed in the blood of Christ. And the result of this purity of heart is that the disciple can see God. In other words, Jesus. Because Jesus reveals the face of God. Now it's at this point in the Sermon on the Mount that a lot of us get overwhelmed and frustrated, and I felt that way this week. And uh, you probably, can't, can't, would, it's not hard to understand that this has been one of, the, one of the parts of Scripture that the church has debated about over 2,000 years. Because how do you, what do you do with a text like that? I don't know about you, but I can't go five minutes and feel like I've had a pure heart. I always feel like there is division and disorder and tugging and, and, and struggles and imperfection. So, so what do you do with a text like this? Is Jesus saying, look, you have to get to this level and then I'll bless you. If you're not pure in your heart, centered, clean, aligned, no blessing. Well, it can't mean that. We've just seen that mercy is one of the characteristics of the Lord. It can't mean that. Everything in, in Christianity is of grace. It can't mean that. Well, it sort of sounds like that. Well, Martin Luther said this. He said, you know, these things are so hard. Here's what I think it's about. I think he's trying to, to discourage us so much that we know we need grace. That he's trying to give us a workout that we know we can never do. A standard we can never reach. 
Well, there could be some truth in that, but but Jesus seems to think that we're supposed to live this way. It, 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 Martin Luther's understanding to me sounds a little bit like a trick. So what do we do with a text like this? Well, let me offer two thoughts as, as you work it out. Um, the, the first is this. In the eight Beatitudes, Jesus is describing Jesus. If you want a picture of who Jesus is, look at the eight Beatitudes. He's the perfect fulfillment of all of them. And if you, if you start with that, here's what I think he's, he's doing. I think he knows that when, when you become his follower, when you start to abide in him, like he talks about in John 15, when you start to hide in him, when you start to breathe in him, to live in him, to, to have your being in him, uh, to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, when you move to that place of union with Christ, and that's what it means to have faith in Christ, is to be united with Christ, that Christ's life is downloaded into you, and at the very core of your being, He is who you are. And so when He says, blessed are the pure in heart, they're the ones that are going to see the kingdom of God. He is not saying, here's something you can never do, friend. He's saying, I know you looked at pornography this week. He's saying, I, I, I know your finances are deceptive. He's saying, I, I know you are so riddled by anxiety that when Doug was talking about having mercy on other people, you didn't hear a word he said, because frankly, you're lucky to get through the week right now. He's saying, you thought some things about that child of yours this week that you never thought would fit your head in a million years. And you've been beating yourself up all week long about those thoughts. He's saying, I still see you as pure in heart. You are pure in heart because I'm in you and you're in me. And I'm calling that vision of purity out of you. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's who you are. The third beatitude, or actually the seventh, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus seems to be speaking against the zealots, Jewish revolutionaries who hoped to bring in the kingdom of God through violence. He says that we resemble God the Father. We we look like His kids when we work for peace. And Paul develops that in Ephesians, particularly chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Christ offered his life blood as a sacrifice, brought you near to God. Christ has made peace between Jews and Gentiles. He's united us by breaking down the wall of hatred that separated us. 
two great ethnicities, two great races, because they've been united in Christ, are now able to be united together. It's the foundation of all racial reconciliation. We're to be peacemakers. Hebrews 12.4, strive for peace with everyone. Romans 14.19, let us pursue what makes for peace. 1 Peter 3.11, whoever desires to love life, let him seek peace. James 3.18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Those are very active verbs. There's something that we have to do to be about peace. I had a conversation with a friend this week who was in a difficult place and found himself in a lot of conflict, and he was not sleeping. You could see it on his face. Something that he cared very deeply about seemed to be slipping away, and it seemed to be happening in a, uh, an evil, dark way. And, and, and when we began the conversation, the, the energy of the conversation was, how can we change this? How can we fix this? What can we do? And by the end of the hour, the Lord had kind of led us to this text, and we began to talk about peacemaking. And at the end of the hour, the emphasis was on what does it look like to work for peace? And it was, it was interesting how much the energy in the room had shifted by the end of the hour. The problem hadn't really been solved, but his heart had moved more towards that of a peacemaker. Now, where I've been thinking about this lately and not coming up with a lot of good conclusions is, is in the area of racial reconciliation. And uh, one of the things that, that I love about the Word of God is you can read it again and again and again and you see different things. And this time as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, I've, I've just noticed how much of it has to do with uh, race. How many different ethnicities are in the Gospel? It's kind of hard to see it. From our perspective, these are all just kind of funny names, but Samaritans and Syrians and even lepers. and There's all sorts of different races in the gospel. And one of the things Jesus goes out of the way to do is to make peace with them, to, to, to draw them into the kingdom of God. He tells stories about it. He makes Samaritans uh, the hero of the story. It'd be like being a, a preacher in Mississippi in, in 1912 telling a story with a Black sharecropper is the hero. And he would just do that again and again and again and again and again. So the question that I've been wondering with is, what does peacemaking really look like uh, between the races? And I know there are many ethnicities in our community. I've been thinking more about peace with African Americans and whites. Uh, a friend of mine, a pastor, mentioned this. He said, you know, I, I, I've been here 20 years, and I'm, I'm losing all my, uh, my young professionals to other cities. And I said, why is that? And we talked about different things, culture. We talked about uh, opportunity in bigger cities, and, and we talked about race. And, and so I asked him for a list of some of the names of the, the people that had left. And so over the summer... Once or twice a week, I've been interviewing um, some of these folks who have left. And then more recently, I've been sitting down with, with a number of African Americans here and talking to them about their experience of, of race in our community. And it, it has been one of the most uh, beautiful and, and troubling 
experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, I, I'm embarrassed to say that, that I've just not really had good, close African-American friends until the past few years. And recently, I was in a guy's office, and I'm also writing a, a series of columns on this for the New Sentinel, so I, I can't write very fast, so I bring my laptop. I know that's kind of cheesy, and I open up my laptop, and I da 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 So we're having kind of a normal conversation. I was asking this guy questions about it, and, and he said, can I go off the record? And I said, well, sure you can. I, cl I, I closed my, my laptop, and I said... Um, I said, shoot. He said, can I tell you what I really think? And, and, and I said, sure. And for the next 40 minutes, he Only what it was like to be a black man. And how much pain he felt. And, and I thought, at the end, we were both late for our next appointments, and I, I, I kind of shifted back into Pat. I said, hey, thanks, great time, really enjoyed it. And then I stopped and I said, I hated it. I said, I didn't enjoy this at all. I'm totally overwhelmed with what you said. I don't know what to do with it. And I think of some of the things that I've tried to do over the years. I think of being with 30,000 pastors in a stadium in Atlanta many years ago, and they had us all stand up and find a black guy and go tell him we were sorry and pray for him. I just thought, that's not it. That's not it at all. We're supposed to be peacemakers. And I know that has something to do with race. But I don't know where to go with it. Well, yesterday morning I was woke up early kind of thinking about it, and so I, I did what I am prone to do is I found a podcast. Um, and it was and it was a young theology professor and She's an African-American, and she was very gracious, and she said, um, start with where you are. She said, if you're in a church that's mostly white, look around. How are you doing with the people that are kind of outsiders just there? How about the singles? How about the college kids? How about the disabled people, the divorced people, the people that are a little older? Start there. Reconcile there. Now, this is something that my heart's breaking on, and I'm not going to preach on it all. I'll tell you that this is what your heart should be breaking over. But um, if it is, talk to me sometime. Maybe we can just start to pray about it. It's something that's important. Well, how's that for a powerful application of what to do about the race problem? Um, 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Whoops, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and under all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is a hard one to talk about in America because we know what's going on around the world, right? I mean, the church in Iraq and Syria, Syria, Syria is the home of one of the world's oldest churches. And uh, uh, Patriarch Gregorius Laham recently said that more than a thousand Christians had been killed. He said he saw entire villages cleared out of their Christian inhabitants. And more than 40 churches and Christian centers damaged or destroyed. That's persecution. That's persecution. Um, we don't face that. I did read a couple stories this week that I thought were interesting. Um, this one was called The Wrong Kind of Christian, the opening paragraph. I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, and cultural engagement. <laughs> there we go. Well, we, that's, 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 they should know us by our beer choice. Um, we, we avoid spiritual cliches and buzzwords. We value authenticity. Study, racial reconciliation, social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban progressive context, but despite some clear differences, I held a lot in common with unbelieving friends. We could disagree about truth, spirituality, morality, remain on the best of terms. The failures of the church often made me more uncomfortable than those in the broader culture. Then, two years ago, the student organization I worked for at Vanderbilt got kicked off campus for being the wrong kind of Christians. In May 2011, Vanderbilt's director of religious life told me that the group I'd helped lead, Graduate Christian Fellowship, a chapter of InterVarsity, was on probation. We had to drop the requirement that student leaders affirm our doctrinal and purpose statement, or we'd lose our status. And then, this I just saw this today, uh, InterVarsity has been, in modern campus terminology, de-recognized by all California State University schools. Basically, they will no longer be a recognized campus organization by any of the 23 schools in their system. Uh, IVCF has been derecognized because they require their leaders to have Christian beliefs. So we're not persecuted, but we may be uh, less culturally acceptable to follow Christ in the, in the years ahead. And Jesus seems to be reminding us that this is the norm. And, and I had an interesting reaction when I read those two reports today. I'm not sure it's the right reaction, but it struck me as odd and maybe worth mentioning. Is rather than wanting to write my congressman, I thought, well, good. The church is never at her best when she has an office next to the president of the organization. The church is never meant to work that way. I think we're healthier and, and thrive more. And I'm not saying don't push for, you know, I'm not saying all that. But I think it can actually be a good thing for the church to realize we're different. We don't really fit here necessarily. We are part of another kingdom. And Jesus says, yeah, and so you should expect some pushback. 
We are not in Nazi Germany in any sense. But Bonhoeffer's forming of the seminary for the confessing church just before the war and modeling it around a monastic community living by the Sermon on the Mount offers an interesting vision for a church in post-Christian America. Let's pray.